All right, you guys, welcome back to another episode of the Think Bigger podcast. Today for the community conversation segment, we have the one and only Steph Papadakis. Steph, thank you for making the time, carving out a time in the midst of the craziness right now to, uh, you know, to make this uh, podcast happen. Yeah, no problem, man. It's, uh, it's be fun to talk. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I think the last time I actually saw you uh, was when uh, I had the ability to be in your your shop space and as we were filming that donut media episode of my car but i was able to you know i had been by there i know people in the area but um you know seeing the cleanliness of it you know i know a lot of fabricators i have a lot of you know friends who uh wrench but i was actually thoroughly impressed at the cleanliness of your shop space oh thanks yeah we're we're fortunate enough to we're fortunate to just work on our own competition cars yes so um we don't have a lot of you know movement and uh and then our, we keep the cars relatively clean so yeah it's, it's uh it's always fun to be in a nice clean shop huh oh yeah yeah i mean i'm sure you've seen it i mean you probably have some friends you walk into it and you're just like how are you working in this you know <laughs> yeah it's always been a, a thing like back when i had my old tuning shop back you know 20 years ago yeah um we'd always clean the shop in the end of the night and in the morning and i just don't like the idea of just crawling you know you gotta get on the ground a lot of the time so it's not like <laughs> rolling on the dirty ground yeah absolutely you know it's it's interesting right to go from you know just being into cars friends it's fun get into street racing i mean when you were younger and you were you know into that whole world did you have an idea already that you were going to turn that into something? Did you have any idea I'm going to somehow turn this into a lifelong career? Or were you just at that time in the moment a teenager just having fun? Uh, yeah, I said I wanted to work. You know, I wanted to be a race car driver. That was my, my big thing. And the idea was I just want to be able to make a living racing cars. However, yeah. that was going to work out. And... Um, I didn't have money to have other people work on my car, so I had to learn how to work on it myself. Yes. And I realized, well, the best way for me to have a race car and have a place to work on it was to work on other people's cars, have a garage, mm -hmm. and then I could have my own race car there and I'd have a space to work on it and potentially time to, to do that. So, I mean, how old were you the first time you were like, I'm going to attempt to fix something on this car? Oh, 16 years old. Like right when we, I got my car. So yeah, I got my car around right when I was turned 16, got my license right when I turned 16. And like within a couple of days, I was at my buddy's house and we pulled the suspension off of it. They knew how to do it. So I was learning from them, sure. but pulled the suspension out and then cut the, the, the suspension spring, spring yeah. <laughs> put it back on. And now the car was lower for no cost, right? My buddies had the tools and stuff and it just kind of kept going from there yeah yeah no cost but like all of us hurt our backs driving around on suspension like that you know um, yeah yeah yes. it was not the most comfortable thing but but 16 so you just dove in you were you were blessed to have some people that knew how to do it and you could learn from them but um a lot of people don't realize you know because you're just such a staple in the in the industry as a whole of course but in southern california you know car culture and and the industry over here, but you actually came from the East Coast, right? And you moved to, to Southern California. Yeah, when I was super young. I mean, I was, I was born in New York, but yeah. I'm pretty much raised, you know, in Southern California. Sure, so, sure, sure. Yeah. So OC, right? Huntington Beach area? That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and was it, so was it just pure coincidence because of high school that your, your peoples were just into cars? So I was really into RC cars. So yes. when I was 13 years old, 14 years old, I wanted to be a professional RC car driver. Okay. And I knew some of the older guys that, that actually, that was actually a thing mm -hmm. back in the, uh, you know, around 1990 when that RC car industry was really going strong. Yeah. And, uh, some of those guys also were into the older guys were into modifying their cars. So one of them had like an older Mustang and a couple of guys had like a CRX and a Civic and, um, so they not only did the RC car stuff, but they were playing with the real cars on the side as well. Yeah. So that's, that's when I realized, oh, you can modify your street car and then 
Yeah. And, uh, basically, you know, have fun with that, too. And by the time, so when I got my license, I wasn't into the RC cars anymore. I just wanted to, you know, modify real cars. What was your first car? It was a 91 Honda Civic SI. Okay. That's... Back in 1993. So it was like a two-year-old Civic? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you know what, man? Those are, uh, I mean, you know, to any real Honda head, those are going to be considered, you know, one of the most timeless chassis ever. Um, that I had one, and I would have that to this day, but I, I actually fell asleep on the 5 in L.A. and cr- hit an F-150. Oh, no. Yeah, I would have that car to this day, regardless. Of, it, started, it was burning oil. Uh, I mean, I got 41 miles per gallon in that thing, you know, when it was like a dollar a gallon. So 10 bucks, and you could drive 400-plus miles. I mean, you can't beat that, you know? Yeah, I remember putting five bucks in the tank, <laughs> and then I could go up to, like, see my girlfriend and back. That would live in L.A. In L.A., from Orange yeah. County to L.A. for five yeah. bucks. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you got to love it. So the 90s, man. I mean, the 90s to many people was the golden era, you know, even early 2000s. But, you know, so you're, you're working on your first car. You're with your friends. And how did it evolve into not just, oh, let me take out springs and cut them, put them back. But I want to race and I want to go faster and I want to compete even in it may, it may have been back, of course, unofficially on the street. But how did it end up turning into this? Uh, now I want to open a motor up for the first time. Um, so pretty soon after, you know, I w- they had Terminal Island Raceway, which was a yep. legal drag strip in Long Beach. Mm-hmm. And I started going to that and I was actually getting time slips and I had nitrous in the car and just kind of put a bigger nitrous shot in there and then eventually burned a, an exhaust valve. So yeah. I had to pull the engine apart. So, um, I, we actually, a buddy and I pulled the engine out in my mom's garage and I brought it to this place called JG Engine Dynamics to be yep. fixed. Yeah. And then, uh, fixed it, put it back in and then broke like an axle. I had broken a bunch of, uh, drivetrain stuff before, but just kind of kept breaking it in different areas and kept trying to fix it. Um, eventually I put carburetors on it, which were terrible (laughs) (laughs) with a direct port nitrous. That thing never ran well. And then, uh, and then after, and this is all now we're kind of after high school. Yeah. Um, I got a, I did a motor swap with a LS Integra engine and I 91 Integra engine and put pistons in it and, uh, turbocharged it and basically started turning the car into a race car. Um, and it just kind of kept evolving. So I did that for a, a year or two. And then I said, okay, so now I want to do a bigger engine. So I got a Prelude VTEC engine. Yep. And then that was turbocharged. And then now the car was a total just trailer queen just for the, you know, the, the events. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you got into that, I mean, so you have your 91 Civic hatch mm-hmm. and then, you know, is this the same chassis this whole time that you're trying out all these things on? It is. Yep. Okay. So the yeah. LS motor and, and you put a turbo on it. What turbo kit or pieces did you use to put that together back then? Oh, that's a good question, man. Uh, I had a turbo from Fast Track Turbo. Okay. Um, Todd Kaneko, he works at Mazda now, but he used to have a, he used to work at Garrett Turbo, I believe. And okay. the turbocharger for the small displacement engines, but making big power, was this weird, like, secret sauce. They would take turbine wheels and housings and, and, and compressor wheels and stuff from different, like, industrial applications, like trucks yes. and stuff, and then mix and match them and then put it into something that would work on a, you know, 1.8 liter or 2.2 liter yeah, Honda yeah. motor. Um, so I had one of his turbos, and then I don't remember the, the manifold. I don't remember. It was a piece together kit, and I got yeah. Like a, I mean, I yeah. had to have been. Was it like a drag manifold? Was it one of Miles's? No, it was. I think it was a tubular manifold. Man, I don't honestly. Yeah, because that's so long ago that you know that the, no one made a kit, obviously. So you had to just put things together, you know. And well, and the, and and it was so long ago. Maybe if there were kits, it wasn't for like an LS motor in a Civic. Sure. It would be for something in an LS, and it wasn't for like the big power. It was like a drag kit or Miles's rev hard kit or something that yeah. was more for like a street or street application. And then 
Uh, I, we put a DFI, which was like a really yep. old school Excel fuel injection on it. Yep. And then like a, like autometer gauges and uh, probably took most of the other wiring out of the car and just yeah. had the wiring and stuff that we needed in there. Yep. Um, and so I always kind of like, well, the, the kit doesn't give me all the stuff that I want. So I'm just going to piece it together for maybe even less expensive yes. and get a better system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so when you finally, you know, you finally get to this point, you put the gauges in, you got the turbo setup piece together and everything. I mean, what, how long have you had the car at this point? Uh, man, I'm probably I don't know, 19 maybe. So, okay. Just a few years. Yeah. Yeah. So three, three or four years. And, and um, yeah. And then, yeah. and then what was next? What it was like every next? year was, there was something different. Sure. So it was like, nitrous and then carburetors with nitrous and then the ls turbo and the next year was like prelude motor turbo and then uh figured you know ran that for maybe a year or so what mounts did you use for the h22 in that ef uh we made them oh you just made them yeah this all the stuff was we just made it so uh i worked at jg engine dynamics back then and they had this a plasma cutter and that engine doesn't really fit with the frame rails, so I plasma cut like the frame rails to make the transmission and everything fit. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there was a fabricator guy that would come to the shop once in a while, and I said, "Okay, I want the engine to sit here." And then he fabricated. Uh, I think we had solid mounts in it, so we fab- yeah. fabricated some solid mounts. So when you it. put that H in the EF, you kept the H transmission. Yes. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, this is before people were sophisticated enough in our to scene even think to, to do put motors, a to trans- transmission swaps yeah. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, because, you know, obviously, you know, like like the mounts, you had to have them made. And, um, you know, the first time someone's like, I'm going to put this transmission from something else on it, you know, you have to have an adapter. Did you ever end up trying any other uh, transmission options with the H? Or you just no, that transmission was fine. That thing was great. I ran that whole powertrain set up when we did the tube chassis ek also yeah that's what i was gonna say was that was that your time with your ef and practicing with the h when you first picked up an h and 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 used it were you already like all right i'm going to this is you know honda's 90s big block i'm gonna use this in the drag car did you already know or how did that come about because you know that ek is you know it was in the peterson and i mean it has this ridiculous history when you were putting that car together, were you did you know from the beginning that you were going to use an H22? Yeah, some stuff was kind of obvious to me. Like back in when I first did the LS swap, we were using the non-VTEC stuff because it was a bit before, right when the VTEC Hondas were coming out, people didn't really figure that stuff out yet. Sure. So the LS motor, the non-VTEC was the way to go, turbocharged, and it ran really strong. We already knew a good combination. And once guys started figuring out the VTEC motors, we're like, oh my gosh, that cylinder head is so much better. So yeah. I was like, well, all these guys are doing B16As or GSR motors. Well, actually, GSR may have not been out. Maybe the 1.7 GSR was out at that point. 93. And, yeah. And I'm like, why would I do that when I can just go to the Prelude VTEC? It's bigger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's got all the VTEC stuff. It's going to have a good head. And it's a closed block, closed deck block. It doesn't have the wet sleeves, open yes. sleeve. So I was like, it, it's all around just going to be better. So then I just kind of skipped ahead and went to that one instead of the so it was obvious to you when you were creating this you know it it ended up being what the very first front wheel drive tube chassis drag car right yeah i think um you know hks had built a tube chassis sort of uh celica thing around that time right but it was rear wheel Um, wasn't it no no they had a front wheel drive they had a rear wheel drive 180sx okay and there was a uh, front wheel drive Celica, I think. They had a Celica. It was a, yeah, yeah, it was a really obscure car. car. Yeah. Um, and I think it was tube chassis. So, and but we, we built ours, and then that went ran really strong, and then just really soon after, uh, Apex built a tube chassis uh, Integra. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And they had so brought they... that to the U.S. as well. Okay. Okay. And I mean, I remember. A couple of those, I don't remember the Celica at all, but I mean, you know, the age difference gives it just enough where 
I'm now at a point where it's, you know, mid nineties and I'm reading magazines. I'm at the magazine aisle at the grocery store and, you know, your cars, um, especially the yellow one that's just kind of like burned into everyone's memory. I mean, why, why yellow? Why all of that style? Because I mean, you, it's in the Peterson and nobody, uh, you know, I was listening to some of the younger people who are even younger than myself and, and, you know, and they're just they they're having all these memories of it, but it still sort of stands its ground. You know, some of the stuff you did in the back with you know the H, and just some of these like more artsy kind of aesthetic angles in the midst of all of the function and, and you know race design. You know that some of that stuff you could pull up to a, a show now, and it would just totally sit there and just own. And I mean, where where do you think you got all that from? Those ideas, that creativity. That was all from Sean Carlson. Oh, so okay. the late Sean Carlson mm. was building like show cars and trying to build race cars. And he was a, uh, like a, a fabricator that was really starting to make a name for him. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I was really good with the engines, the electronics and the wiring and, and completing projects and understanding <laughs> transmissions and like this whole thing. So yeah. I was like, we're like, okay, well let's, take my 91 Civic that I had hacked up that the frame was starting to bend and everything on and let's tube chassis the front of it. Yeah. And so he was, he, so we did that. Um, so he built the tube chassis stuff and then I redid some of the engine and then we ran it once and we're like, yeah, this is good. But now we got all this back of the car. That's not good. So let's just tube chassis the whole thing. Cause we can make the car way lighter. Yeah. And then once we decided to got into doing the rear of the car, we were like, well, if we're tube chassis the whole thing, why would we put a 91 Civic body on it? Let's just put the newest body on it, which at that yeah. time was a 97 uh, Civic. So we're, we thought, okay, well, we don't want to take a, get a whole brand new car. We can't afford that. And so what we did is we bought a roof and doors and quarter panels that like a body shop would get to repair a car. Yeah. And then we hung those on the tube chassis. So that car never actually started off as an EK. It started off as just basically a tube chassis that we put parts department brand new body panels on, EK panels on it. I see. And then uh, Sean being, you know, so into style and understanding, like he, he also worked for Turbo Magazine. He was a photographer. Yeah, he was the editor, right? He was yeah, a he feature was, he was one editor of the editors. too, right? He was a feature yeah. editor, yeah. He did a lot of the covers, and we were talking about different colors. He's like, dude, do it yellow because mm -hmm. everybody likes to shoot yellow cars, and it's great for covers. And we're, I'm like, okay, I don't have a problem with yellow. So that was why it was yellow. It was yellow to be photogenic. Yeah. It was, yeah. <laughs> I don't have any <laughs> soft spot for yellow or anything like that. Um, and uh, and it worked out. Like we're, We tried to figure out different yellows, and we're like, let's just do real yellow so it's like an osha yellow or something yeah did he already had he already done you know the the infamous you know the black and yellow with the red accent with the mcguires on his on his ford right did he already have that and it was now like twinsy style or no 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 that that we did the that came after yours it was yeah so we we had that car and uh built the civic campaigned it or ran at nines Yep. You know, started getting a lot of popularity, and then Ford wanted to do something. Yeah. Okay. And I was already hooked up with Honda. I was already doing something. So he did a deal with Ford to build uh, their new Focus at the time. So it was the success of your EK that sort of brought in Ford for him to do that particular car. Yes. Right. But yeah. he was the one who suggested the yellow. And then, it you know, for just because, you know, from the editor – uh, feature editor kind of angle and i mean did it worked out because he i mean he was spot on right uh, as far as you know it photographs well and stands out he was right about a lot of stuff like uh i was always the kind of just get the car done let's get it to the track like i just want to sure. go fast sure. and he was like you know let's clean everything and make it look good and mm -hmm. you got to not just be quick but you know show well as as show uh well yeah um, as well and that's something that I've kind of held to this day. I mean, if you are representing brands and you want to have some kind of style that's marketable. Yes, um, and memorable. And memorable. 
then you have to have a clean, I think you have to have a clean car as well. Yeah. Um, at least in my world, uh, I think that there's a space for the more garage looking, you know, uh, rougher builds. And I can I appreciate yeah. those sort of styles. Sure. Uh, but the more corporate acceptable setups tend to be more clean and, and for sure. you know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's interesting. It, it, you know, like my memory of this, I was I was fairly young, kind of catching wind of a lot of this stuff and just reading about it, you know, and uh, what you guys were doing. When did when in the midst of, of these two builds, did he did Sean create new forms? Uh, he had that even before I met him. Oh, so okay. he was on the side was doing these block guards. Yeah, where. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was a you know it was aluminum piece that was CNC that would fit inside the Honda blocks to yeah help them not you know break the cylinder walls. So he had that. Um, I forgot what other products he had, but that was a that was a brand name that he had. The uh, one only one I remember time. is the Blog Guard. Everyone everyone wanted one, thought about it, everyone knew about it. You know, just, we were just, I was too young to get one. But yeah, I mean that's the one thing I remember. I don't remember anything else from New Yeah, uh, he'd put the sticker on his different car builds and such. Yeah, um, but that was that was about it. Uh, and then he, yeah, then he built that Focus, which took a long time to get finished, and it was the craziest thing with the sequential transmission and all this crazy wiring and yeah, like a thirty-five thousand dollars paint job and all this crazy stuff. Um, so, and I didn't help him with that. He was on his own. I uh, see that that project, but he we also kind of. Separated ways at that point. Oh, okay. So um, you guys en- ended up just going going in your own ways, and then you just, you know, did you did you gather a team, if you will, to already kind of at this point, you know, you're already, you know, you're breaking records. You already ha- have established yourself in in a very substantial way. Did at this point, did you already know that this is what life was going to be about from as far as you could see forward? Yeah, well, I was pretty motivated. So really, pretty quickly after we debuted the EK and yeah. ran into the nines, uh, Frank Choi that ran Battle of the Imports mm-hmm. helped me get uh, our first few sponsors. Yeah, which were was Greddy Performance Products, DBS Shoe yeah. Company, and then soon after uh, AEM Electronics or AEM yep. Intakes. You know, they were AEM yeah. every they were AEM Intakes back then. Back then, yeah, yeah, and. Uh, and it just kind of snowballed and evolved from there. Like the, the next year, we built a, a 2001 Civic Coupe and turned the engine 90 degrees and used a transaxle yes. transmission in the front. So that was really breakthrough with the drivetrain configuration. And what that year was, was that? That would be uh, in 2001. So we built the hatchback and debuted it, I think, in the end of 98 and then ran it through 99. And then in 2000, we ran, I think, a little bit more of the hatchback, the EK, and then we built the coupe. And I think that debuted at SEMA 2000 okay, or 2001. Was it your coupe or was it your EK? I think it was your EK where you in the you won the you won your class or your champion in the NIRA in 2000, right? Which, yeah, which that was, was probably it? the EK. The EK, yeah. And then we we won like the. We, we yeah that that thing won all kinds of stuff yeah and then yeah. IDRC outlaw champion right the next year yeah yeah that's right you were yeah and then I mean I I, I mean I remember because you know turbos for compact car super street Honda tuning import tuner I was just reading all of them you know and I had a lot of older friends that were into drag racing and and, and I paid attention to it as much as I could so it was you know I was paying attention to a lot of this stuff and just you know seeing some of the records. Uh, you know, fall. So you're winning. You know, you're winning these these years. When I was, um, I attended some of them. I mean, I was, let's see, I was probably about eighteen, nineteen at this point. Um, so I could get around. I mean, um, let's see, world world's fastest front wheel drive, world's quickest front wheel drive. Right? You were the first to do. Well, like you said, nines, but then it ended up being uh, sevens and sixes. Right. Yeah, we ran eventually. We ran an eight fifty seven with the EK. Mm-hmm. Um, when we built the coupe, we ran down into the uh, eight twelve. We never mm-hmm. did get into the sevens front wheel drive. 
Yeah, you, you ended up doing that rear wheel drive, huh? Yep, yep. And I think our front wheel drive 2001 or 2002 record stood for, geez, eight years or 10 years or something like that before another wow. front wheel drive came, which I think was Lisa Kubo and the Saturn guys, or I don't remember okay. exactly who it was, but it took a while uh, before they, they finally beat that time. So in a front wheel drive car, right? In a drag racing world, you know, one's pulling you, one's pushing you. I'm sure people probably. I mean, well, how was it back then? Was the was the community and the cars that you were lining up against? Were there, you know, the people outside of the like the Japanese or Honda specific enthusiast crowd? Uh, were they like kind of like making fun of like these little front wheel drive cars that you were coming out with, or had you already kind of shut all that down because you were winning? Right. So in the mid '90s, late '90s, it was really yeah. obscure. We, we yeah. couldn't, it was really hard to get shops to build us custom parts, like yes. camshafts and engine parts and stuff. But around 2000, 2002, the sport compact car scene was really building. Yeah. And yeah. they became, uh, you know, much more uh, widespread. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's still, I think, a segment. Uh, but we all, you know, the sport compact stuff had. We had our own drag events and all of the, you know, hot import nights and all of these different things. So there, yeah, and the scene was really stuff. growing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it so wasn't. It, uh, we had our own scene, so it wasn't. We didn't care about the, uh, sure, the traditional drag race. It was so big and thriving that you know you didn't even need to pay attention to the other stuff, right? Well, you know, we we wanted to go NHRA racing and we wanted to be on sure. the NHRA series, and we did later um, have yeah. a few events with them, but. Pretty soon, I realized that I don't, I didn't want to do whatever those guys were doing. Mm. Um, it does, it didn't appeal to me. So, yeah. uh, been kind of going off on our own tangent ever since. I mean, you know, the work speaks for itself. I mean, the history, all the stuff we're talking about. I mean, first, you were, I mean, there's so many things that you did with the front wheel drive, you know, community and the chassis, you know, the first to break what, 150, 160, 180. You know, 100 miles an hour, um, all those types of things. How, how, why is it that you feel like you were able to do that with a front wheel drive setup and uh, before someone else did? Why do you think that you and your squad were able to do it? What do you attribute that success to? It's a good question. Um, I was wholly committed to it. So mm-hmm. it wasn't about, you know, I didn't have a kid until I was much later and mm-hmm. all the girlfriends and stuff were secondary to all the motorsports that I did. Sure. Um, all I cared about was just making the car quicker. And there was, so I always just spent a lot of time with my friends would talk about it. And then I would also, you know, fo- think about the car and work on it all the time. So I was always learning, but then I wouldn't just stay in our, our circle of friends. I'd also look out and see what the other drag racers are, were doing. I'd go, like to an indie car race and look at those cars or maybe sure. look at like a rally car under the hood and see what else I can learn from other types of motorsports and other kind of car builds to apply yes. to what we were doing to yes. try to always stay at the leading edge. There you go. I mean, yeah. I mean the history of being a, you know, drag racing and all of these records. And when you went, I mean, we're talking front wheel drive with 150, 180 miles an hour, the world's quickest and et cetera. And then you go rear wheel drive you know, 200 mile per hour club and the first drag Honda to break 200 miles and then sevens and the first one into the sixes, right? Yeah. What yeah. year was that when you broke, when you went sub seven? Uh, I think the first, first or second year, probably 2003. Um, we probably ran into the sixes with the rear wheel drive and then yeah. we eventually ran 652 at 215 miles an hour. Do you remember that past? Like, can you feel it right now when you think about it? Yeah, yeah. No, that I mean, fun. I can only. But okay, so I guess, I guess what really you know trips me out is you blink your eyes and you know let's you take someone who's you know take a, a I don't know a fifteen year old right and they they don't they didn't have the magazine era they barely even had forums right they're gonna just know what's pretty much on social media and stuff. And if they're, you know, I, I go to the FD events and, you know, we have so many mutual industry acquaintances and, and friends, you know, that I, I mean, I see, you you know, you work in. And if like if someone was, were to just not know anything, they would think that you were just all into drifting. How did you transition from all of these 
you know, progressive success is with just so much history as in as as a drag racer. How did you end up just segueing into drifting and succeeding at it? Well, I've always just been into driving and and building cars. Yeah, drag racing happened to be where I, you know, what was accessible to me. Yes, that's what they did with the street racing, and that's what we had Valley Imports, and that's just where I could race my car. Yes, Um, and but I always had a wandering eye looking at different road race cars and rally and and Formula One things like that, and yeah, always had some aspirations to do other things as well. And um, after you know about ten years doing drag racing, at least ten or twelve years, I just kind of you know there was an opportunity to do some drifting. Yes. And at first, I was like, "Well, this looks kind of silly." Uh, but as the cars became a little bit, once the Jap- Japan cars came, yes, and we saw the level of what they, the horsepower that they had, and the that level of sophistication, yes. it was it became more interesting to me. And kind of looking at the cars, I was like, oh, these things are pretty simple. Like, we could build this. I could build this. I see. And I'd, that'd be kind of cool. Instead of just drag racing, it'd be kind of fun to do some drifting. Sure. So I built a Nissan 240 on the side in 2004 and practiced a bit with that. And then in 2005, uh, built a Honda S2000 and did some Formula Drift events with that driving. While well, we not were just still some. You were, the- you were Rookie of the Year in 05. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I mean, did... I like how you just say, oh, you know, I tried it out, but I mean, you got good at it and, you know, then how did you end up hooking up with, you know, first you ended up working with, uh, Tanner Faust and, and how did that, how did that, uh, combination come to pass? So, uh, I was meeting a bunch of the guys in the drifting scene, obviously, cause I was competing in those events in 2004, 2005. Yeah. And at the same time I was drag racing. And I was really seeing this build of enthusiasm, and I really liked the the passion, the fresh passion that the the drifters drivers had. And it was a new sport, and um, and it was fun building a little bit different cars. And I was getting a bit again burnt out on the drag racing. Mm-hmm. And uh, 2006, we had an opportunity to do a little bit more with drift. And the the NHRA series and a bit of the drag racing, I could kind of see a little bit of decline. Okay. Um, as well as my motivation to continue to to drag race. So understood. Uh-huh. Uh, I was like, okay, it'd be kind of fun to just go drifting, but I don't think I can drive the drift car and go win events. But our whole program was designed to based on winning. Yes. And Tanner Faust at the time, you know, he had the skills to win, but he was having challenge getting into a car that would take him to the top you know understood and uh and we we made a deal together that we were going to build that i'd build a car for him and then he'd drive it and then so he'd be in the a car and i'll just be in the b car yeah it'd be a two-car team and for the money that we were spending uh with aem and everybody in 2005 for drag racing we were able to take that same amount of money and do a two-car drift program in 2006. I see. I and see. So and we you guys did well. Reti- yeah, yeah. We retired. I retired from drag racing at the end of 2005. And then 2006, we started the the drift program. And Tanner got, you know, we had a win or two that year. And then he got third in the championship. Um, and then the next two years, won the Formula Drift Championship. Yep. What seven, eight, or eight and nine, maybe? Yes, yeah, so it's six, seven, was eight, third, and seven, eight. Yeah, won the championship yes. both of those years, and then, uh, and then in two thousand nine, started a, working with Toyota or Scion at the time. Yeah, yeah. And then we built the Scion TC rear-wheel drive converted with the NASCAR, uh, the NASCAR V eight engine. Yes, yes. Yeah. So Tanner drove that for a couple of years. That car sounded and, crazy. Yeah, that whole car was really fun, and it was cool, we, man. And then when we started that relationship with Scion, there was so much work building the car and everything we had going on in the, with the team that I retired from – I essentially retired from driving. And I said, look, my forte seems to be with running the, running the shop and, and building the cars and stuff like that. So let me just focus on that And because I can't, I can't do what Tanner does. Like the way he drives, I, I just can't do that. I see. Um, and so I figured it was a better 
team if I just said, okay, I'm not going to drive. Let me focus on building the cars, and then he could focus on driving. And uh, and that was, yeah, 2009, 2010. So Tanner. team manager, crew chief, engineer, builder, that, that's where you decided that was your specialty, he drive. And, you know, that's an interesting thing, stepping back from the chronology of it all. You know, where do you think you developed the ability to, to know or, or acknowledge um, these types of things, like knowing what someone else's strong suit is, you know, versus saying, I can't right now, but if I practice, I can do what he can or better. How come it wasn't that? Why was it just, I'm, I, I can't do that, so I'm going to do what I'm better at. And we'll, you know, like some people don't know how to uh, acknowledge or, or even notice those types of yin and yang and pieces of a puzzle to make up the whole come together. Where do you think that ability came from for you to be able to do stuff like that and see things like that? I guess I'm just honest with myself. Okay. You know, I, I'm driven and I'm willing to try things. Sure. But if I've been failing at this for a while and I see some other buddy, someone else that I'm competing against has success and I just start assessing like what am I doing wrong like what is it that so when I would drive like I could go out there and I felt like I knew what I needed to do yes but something in my head I would like lose a little bit of time like I wasn't able to get into the zone and okay. really just focus on what I need to focus on. And I'm like, I guess there's something in my head that is not, that's different than these guys that are able to just focus and do it and have that connection between their brain and their hand. Like I can go out there and drift and I can go out there and do all the drag racing and stuff, but there's that next level of driving that and focus and connection, man, man yeah, and just, machine, et cetera. Yeah. You know, there's, there's part of it is practice. But I don't, I don't think you become a world-class driver by just having practice. You have to have some natural talent. Talent, sure, sure. As well. Um, and I so you embracing that concept made you step back and be like, I'll build it, you drive it, and let's go win. Yeah, because when I was been building the cars, and I've been doing it for so long, and it's always come so natural to me that I was like, well, I guess that's my forte because that comes natural to me. And when I look around, I guess I tend to do that more better than, <laughs> uh, you know, I feel like I can compete on the highest levels as far as yeah. building cars. Yeah. But I didn't have that feeling or, or couldn't show that as far as driving. Understood. Maybe Understood. drag racing, but um, the drag racing was always a much more simple to me. Sure. But even then, like... I gave up probably a championship in the NHRA with the real wheel drive in 2005 because I, I red lit in like one of the finals. So it wasn't uh, a little like bit of nerves. I, yeah. I don't even know. Like I never even had nerves. It was just something there just the mentally, it just, what didn't, I, I wasn't able to do it as consistently as a world-class driver could do it. Understood. Um, I don't know why, you know, don't do drugs, kids, you know, but, or, <laughs> or, you know, but there's plenty of people that, that, uh, you, you just never know, right? There's sure. some people, and you're not even the drugs thing. You have people that are, do crazy drugs and then they're really good at something and some that don't do any and they're sure. not good at stuff. Sure. So, um, sure. Yeah, that's, I, I, mean, I, I can't put my finger on it. It's, it's an interesting thing, right? Because, I mean, I ask a question like that only because, you know, there are people who, um, like you said, objectively, you know, I need to be honest with myself. You step back, objectively look at yourself, kind of, you know, uh, introspection and and just sort of break it down and come to the conclusion that, uh, you know, I'm better at this. So this is what I'm going to do. And I mean, the history of your, you know, your accolades, the resume would all indicate that someone could easily be like, oh, if you tried harder, you could have. But but it's clear that from all of the things that you've accomplished that it's a winning formula and your longevity, you know, you end up, you know, what, you end up going from working with Tanner, you ended up hooking up with the next, what, the next couple of four or five years, right, working with uh, Frederick Asbo all the way till present day, right? Yeah, and you know, now that I think about it, I remember now, I was – you know, around 2008 or 2009, I was just burnt out of being in the spotlight. 
Mm. You know, for so many years, I was in the magazines and doing interviews and signing things. And 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 then Tanner was becoming really popular and he was doing this stuff. It's like, good. (laughs) Tanner, you go out there and do these things. I'm going to hang out in the trailer and and chill out and not have those responsibilities. So I was a bit just burnt out of being in the in the spotlight. Understood. And that kind of carried on for up until even like the last couple of years. Sure. Um, and when I realized that it's probably important to, you know, have the Papadakis name and, and show what we're doing and things like that. Yeah. Uh, more than just being in the background. And that was kind of a bit of the, you know, starting up the YouTube channel that we have now mm-hmm. and really starting to share stuff on Instagram and sharing, you know, the, the stuff we do in the shop was, um, trying to have you know more than just a driver in a car but also yes. have like a full team package and and it and it came from I love other I love motorsport in general but it's yes. not always about the driver or who's winning it's about the technology and how they're building the cars and why they build the cars certain like that like that so like the rally cars are really interesting to me and how they turn this kind of street car thing into this crazy rally car and the crazy modifications they do to the suspension and the engine and the drivetrain, but they don't tell that story very much. And the thought was that I think there's people that follow drift or maybe don't even follow drift, but would be interested in, in seeing how we build these cars or build the engines. Um, and we, it'd be fun to share that stuff. It wasn't just about the competition on track. Sure, sure. I mean, you had that break, right, with, with the time that you were burned out, and you let you know you let Tanner kind of, uh, you know, take that role as far as being in the limelight. And and so after a few years of break, you realized, you know, to, to as you just described, to have that package, that team package, and and you know, I mean, you you would think that you were a uh, a 14 year old YouTube vlogger the way that you embraced it because you know the 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 thing that I really like about it is is you know you have a, a certain amount of class you can, you're soft spoken and you're you let your work speak for yourself and that's you know one of the reasons why I've always appreciated from the times that I've you know watched and, and observed and appreciated the that from from going to FD events and, and reading magazines and you know over the past 15 plus years and then when I you know when I was able to go to your shop and um, you know, as a car guy, it's a thing. It was a thing. Like as when we were setting it up with Donut, it only was until, you know, very, very close to the end where it was like, oh, yeah, we can do it at this location. And I was like, oh, uh, yeah, I'll say yes to that anytime. And it was really great. You know, obviously, I mentioned earlier how clean it was, but just to be in the space where you're doing all of these things. And then what was that? That was about like nine months ago. And that was, was that, had you already gotten that new B58 super engine and you just hadn't started tearing it down yet when I was over there? Oh man, I don't remember. But Did it was, you remember, it was, was about the that su- time. Was the car there? The super was not in there at that time. I thought you, but I just thought you, you cleared the shop space so we could shoot the, the donut video, but I didn't, you know, I don't remember seeing the Supra. Then it wasn't there yet because the Supra never went anywhere else. Okay. It, okay, it, 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 it could have been under a car cover and you never saw it. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, it was about nine months ago, and that's about the same time that you ended up dropping your um, B58 teardown video on YouTube, which is over four million views right now. Oh, then the car was there. It must have been there under okay. a car cover. Okay. You just, you just missed it. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, we, yeah. We kept that super secret. I see. Yeah, I see. that was a whole... That was uh, dude. The way you've yeah, done it, man. I'm telling you, Steph. You know, there's a lot of the, you know, uh, the younger people are gonna call call them or you or us or whatever the old guys, the old timers. But you know, the the evolution and the constant success and and everything that you've had, it's really amazing to be able to 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 witness that and then you know have that have that expressed here in the conversation. But you know, like I said, you know, a lot of the older people, they just you know we. People know how to use, you know, Facebook and Instagram and and so on and so forth. But as far as embracing it and creating the content and that is able to, especially in this day and age, reach, you know, every single corner of the earth, essentially, you know. So, you know, then 
then to see that transition where you put out your you make your channel and you know everything's you know half a million to five million views and it's just a, it's a really an amazing thing because you're doing it you're making it and so for you to stop and say okay it'd be a really good idea to you know to help show this and share it and be able to have that type of exposure and success without it necessarily being uh you know limelight and cameras in your face and spotlights and stuff you know so i mean how do you how did you end up deciding that youtube and social media needed to become part of the package uh so i grew up in you know both of us grew up in the magazine era mm -hmm. so you know that's where you've got your information from yeah and you know it kind of transitioned over to the internet and initially it was uh you know websites or forums and then there was you know a mix between magazines and and websites and in the magazine industry essentially died now right yeah and you don't there's some websites now maybe jalopnik and autobuzz and you know things like that sure autobuzz is the old one but um and uh and so and and the forums are there's much less of those yeah and now it's mostly like social media so facebook instagram youtube and yeah. we were basing a lot of our stuff on our exposure now on social media yes. and the sponsors and stuff really cared about uh facebook sure and, and instagram and once facebook sort of changed their algorithm yes after the last election um and it became more of a you know online and more and more community based than it's <laughs> a nice way of saying it yeah yeah more community based small community versus like uh uh, more app and they want they wanted it was like a pay to play like look you can get in front of yes. people you gotta advertise for sure uh, and it was scary that that was gonna happen with Instagram yes and I was learning a bunch of stuff on YouTube like I learned some machines like whenever I want to learn anything that's on YouTube yeah so YouTube yeah. is such a good platform yes and I feel felt like it was a bit underutilized in our space uh, and so I was like well let's just share some of the stuff that we're doing on YouTube and see how it goes. Yeah. Um, cause I was scared of the, the Facebook, what Facebook was going to do with, uh, with everything. So it was a bit of diversification. I kind of yeah. like the longer form content. Sure. sure. Um, and it lives there for, it can live there. Like yes. when you build something, put something on Facebook, it cycles off the timeline. And it's kind of gone forever. I see. And, and I wanted to build something or record something that could kind of live there and you could always, get back to it relatively easily yeah on the yeah. channel and um so did a couple of like test videos to try to figure it out and it took us about a year or so to come up with a little bit of a format mm -hmm. but uh yeah the engine teardown when i did the 2ar engine our four-cylinder yeah. engine teardown that was a bit of a breakthrough video and i was like oh all right well this resonates with people yes so let me just film the stuff that how i would want to watch it. Yes, and that was yes. just turned out to be the the format. Like, tell me where you're at. Give me a little bit of a uh, uh, establishing. You know, like where are we? I don't care yes. what the weather is. I don't care what you ate for breakfast. Like, yes. I don't care about you. I care <laughs> about the thing that I clicked on was this engine. So get to it. Yes. So that was my always my thing is I'm not going to talk about myself. Like, look, we're here at our shop and we've got this engine. And this is what it does. Let's take it apart. And yes. I think people really appreciate that. Uh, kind of just getting into it um so that's been a the format since dude and it's it is ridiculously uh successful it's great to to see that i mean you know it, you touched on a very simple thing you know you said you you realized it was a useful platform and in your space underutilized but you were learning from people who had put videos on there and you were immersing yourself in that and so you decided to create these uh, videos in the way that you would want to watch them. And I think it's kind of an amazingly simple concept, but uh, a lot of people can't really seem to, to grasp that. They're too caught up using it to watch, you know, entertainment. It has, it has entertainment value, like almost like reality TV. And, and people don't realize that you can learn anything you could ever want to learn there. Piece by piece, you can pause it, you can rewind it. And you can reference it, like you said, it lives there. You can reference it at any time, 
whenever from your phone. And it's it's this amazing piece of technology and evolution. And people somehow, um, from what I observe, they somehow just keep forgetting that you can educate yourself rather than just be entertained on the Internet. Yeah, and and uh, I think it's continuing to build. I mean, people are it, – it's uh, – YouTube's here to stay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think the older folk are starting to realize that a little bit more now. And, and especially, you know, where, where we're at right now today yeah. is more than ever because, you know, th- they're quickly running out of new content on television because they can't film stuff. Right. Because all these, these uh, productions are shut down because yes. they can't have, you know, a lot of people. Yes. And um, so Hollywood's pretty much shut down right now. But these in, these YouTubers and influencers are still <laughs> filming, you know, tearing apart their Lamborghini or doing whatever they're doing. And whatever shops. they're doing. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's like the new reality show. Right. Because reality show on TV broadcast television is kind of like hyper reality. It's almost like produced reality show. Oh, oh it's not almost. It's yeah, it's yeah. produced reality. Yeah, so, but you know what? I think it's amazing the evolution, the adaptation, and just the observational like prowess that you've had and implementing it. I mean, I'm, I'm I, I think it's amazing because there's a lot of people from your generation doing the same thing, and they they would want to be doing what you're doing, but they just didn't do it. That's always been my my thing. Is I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm gonna try to do it, and then I'm gonna learn how to do it while I'm. It's kind of like a ready. Instead of ready, aim, fire, it's ready, fire, aim. I see. You know, and and, and uh, so when we started started doing the videos at first, it was just, all right, I'm just getting my iPhone. I'm going to film myself and record sure. it and see what it looks like. And I was just using iMovie on my little laptop. Yeah. And then soon after that, I got a little bit different camera and I was watching other – it's pretty crazy. Like I, I was watching on YouTube how to YouTube. Yes. <laughs> and I'm yes. watching on YouTube how to use the camera properly and how to film. But yes. what was really neat is the guys and girls, the, but the people that would make the content about how to use a camera and the video yeah. camera and how to edit, those were usually aspiring filmmakers. So their content on YouTube was typically the best, some of the better content on YouTube because they understood how to put a video together, not just how to use the camera. Yes. So I was using some of their filming styles. I was like, ooh, I could do that, but instead of how, you know, they're whatever they're filming, I'm going to just do that on the car scene. Yes. So, and so it was just applying other people's concepts or other people's techniques in the the car space videos. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it I mean, we're talking uh, you you would think that you just had been doing this for much longer. I mean, you know, your B58 Dino video, the 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 B fifty eight teardown video, two J uh, builds and teardowns, everything's you know well into the millions, you know. So that's it. It's really really great to be able to see that, and it's just a testament to the longevity. I mean, you just, I mean, it, it, I, I'm serious. You know, it's it's pretty it's pretty awesome to see that type of, uh, you know, continued success. And I mean, the the new Supra, you know. Um, Let's talk about that for a little bit. What is your take on, you know, you've done the 2J. You have obviously have a high respect for a 2J. I mean, everyone does. But how did you – what did you think about that B58 when you first got in and tore into it? Yeah, so we worked with Toyota now for years. And when they – you know, we heard that they were coming out with the new Supra. We're like, yeah. ooh, that would be so cool to build one of those and drift it. Sure. Um, so we talked to them for a while. And we're finally able to uh, – get a car from them yep uh but you know no one knew what the potential on that engine was sure so uh we thought okay it would be kind of interesting and a bit <laughs> scary on our end sure so why don't we just do like a four-part series where we build the engine and we try to make a thousand horsepower out of it yes but what was so compelling about it was no one had done it before no one had seen inside of it including me Right. So it wasn't like we knew what was going to happen. It was very suspenseful. No sure. one knew, including us, what was going to happen. It's not even scripted. It's like it is the reality show of the modern time, right? Yes. Um, and uh, I just like, F it. You know, like, let's put myself out there and hopefully we'll succeed. And if we fail, then, <laughs> then uh, 
you know, uh, you know, then we'll, we'll it'll be good content regardless. Sure. And then we'll adjust and and you know keep trying to succeed. And that's kind of how I've sort of lived my life, which was let's have an ambitious goal. I don't know how to do it yet, but let's just get into it and figure it out. And yes, uh, if we don't have it figured out by the end of the day, we'll go to sleep and we'll keep continue working on it tomorrow until we get to our goal. I mean, that's a be- that's a beautiful perspective. And so now that you've gotten to this point, you know, 3D printed parts and the chassis and I mean, the, the implementation of all of this technology. But, you know, in the end, the power plant, what, what are your thoughts on on the B-58? I think it's a great engine. Um, it's, I think, for Adams, it was 40 pounds. I think it's 40 pounds lighter. It's either 40 or 6. I think it's 40 pounds lighter than a 2JZ. Okay. It has the aluminum block, which is good. Um, it, uh, we don't have to do a lot to it. So we just plop a piston and rod in there in the short mm-hmm. block and uh, a little bit of head work. And, uh, I mean, it's a good engine. Um, I think it's a relatively expensive engine right now because there's so few of them. Sure. And that car is pretty rare, you know, brand mm-hmm. new car. Uh, so I don't, I, you know, I don't know what, uh, I don't know if you, it's apples and oranges a bit comparing it to 2J. Sure, um, sure. Because the 2Js, you can get them all day long from the Japanese importers. And there's parts, you know, all over the internet that you can just catalog order, you know, how yeah. to, you know, yeah. to make a bunch of power. So I think that one has this benefits because of its, uh, how many people have designed parts and how long, how many people know how to work on it. Sure. But, um, I like the new technology. I think that, uh, I think a lightweight, um, high efficiency engine like the B 58 has much more potential than we've already done with it. Mm. And, uh, and I like building new stuff. Like there's, so many experts globally that are good at two J's and they know how to build good power. And there's a lot of cars that successfully run that engine. Yes. Um, so I like to do something that's a little bit different and we, sure. got, we have an opportunity to do something new with the B 58. Yep. So as an enthusiast with so much history and, 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 and do you have a perspective for all of the people that still want to complain about the new Supra is not a Supra, it's a BMW, blah, blah, blah. What is, what is Steph's take on that? Um, I, think, I think all of us wanted to see Toyota go out there and put out their best, what they could build, which is their, you know, their best car. Mm-hmm. So that's our memory of the original, or the Mark, not the original, but the Mark IV Supra. Yeah, the Mark IV. was like, 4, yeah. this is the best thing that Toyota can build, right? Like, this yes. is their... And um, I think people were expecting that of the Mark V, but uh, but my understanding is that that's just not what the modern sports car manufacturers just don't do that much anymore. I don't I don't know for whatever I don't I don't know. I can't speak on Toyota's behalf. Sure. But as far as the car itself, um, I like driving on the street. And mm-hmm. when we took it apart, it's actually quite nice. Like the front end's aluminum. There's a lot of really lightweight parts on it. Um, the engine's definitely good. Uh, dudes are making like 600 horsepower with bolt-on parts and like retunes yes. and stuff. Yes. So it's obviously very tunable. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. Seems like a good car to me. Yeah, it speaks <laughs> for itself. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, what's what's next? Like, what's next on the horizon uh, for, you know, not just the channel, but like, what do you, what, what are the goals going into 2021? And I, and, and you know what? I really do like the, the look of the Mark V Supra. Ah, and okay. When I, I, I really like the look of the Mark V. Initially, I was like, mm. Mm-hmm. And especially when yeah. I see it like lowered or with different yeah. wheels uh-huh. and sometimes with a couple of like, maybe a little wing and, or, and a, uh, like a lip spoiler or something. It is a good looking car. Yeah. I, I think it's a great looking car. And when I compare it to a, a, I, I just think it's a great looking car. So, um, overall I do like it a lot. Um, sorry. What was the next question? No, uh, no. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I totally get there was such a thing. I mean, it's, it's diminishing quickly. People are, you know, not so much so adamant and vehement about I don't like it. It's not a super, et cetera. But I was, you know, for someone that's now so intimately connected to the chassis and has, has explored and, 
and and you know worked on it from every square inch it was just an interesting thing to to get your take on it but there you go from underneath and lightweight parts and aluminum front end and all the way to just having a certain appeal the 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 shape of it it's the haunches if you will you know like you said with some arrow a little bit lower to the ground with the right set of wheels it's a beautiful car you know and it's pretty inexpensive like i don't think it's fair to compare that to a gtr sure because the gtr is twice as much Um, yeah agreed agreed and when you start to hear about these numbers like you said up to 600 with bolt-ons without having to pull the motor that's pretty that's pretty crazy you know yeah that's pretty good for the price range yeah Yeah, that's you know it works well for the, the aftermarket for the tuners yeah, so the question was simply, you know, what what are you aspiring to accomplish? What can the people look forward to in, you know, well, we're in a very odd, <laughs> yeah. very odd time right now in, in, in the world with, you know, in this mid, you know, coming up in the middle of 2020. But for whenever these types of things can, can kind of go back to any amount of normalcy and the season for whatever time of the year that will be can continue, what are the goals and aspirations for Papadakis Racing in 2021? Well, I love to build cars, and I love to compete with those cars. And mm-hmm. the guys that we work with the shop, at the shop, um, like Sean and Aldo, and, and they love to do that stuff as well. Yeah. So all of us at Papadakis Racing want to continue building cars and competing. Yes. Uh, and I have a, a mission statement, you know, it's that the stuff that we do, we want to share. So unlike most motorsports teams where – they don't share the technology that they have into the cars. I want to share yes. that as much as possible because I think there's as many people that like to watch the competition on the track also like to watch the cars being built and, and hear about and watch the technology in the actual vehicle itself yes. because they're into knowing how things are made and how things work and they have their own projects that they work on. And if we can help to, you know, entertain them in that way or even inspire them yes. or teach them to work on their own stuff, uh, then that's, that's great. And because that's how I would want, uh, I wish, I wish there were, there were more teams like that. I, I don't follow any r- much rally racing because it's hard to see kind of what they're doing. But if there was a team that was putting out sure. videos on taking the engines out and showing us the transmissions and all that stuff, Oh my gosh, I'd watch every, every second. of that. Yes. Yes. So, so instead of being secretive, um, you decide that you want to, to help educate and share and entertain with what goes on behind the scenes. I mean, that premise is, is a beautiful one. And I mean, you're, you, you established that niche and you're doing it. And I really appreciate this opportunity to, uh, you know, I mean, you have all of these builds going on, all of the ways that you juggle. And then to top it all off, you have, you know, your child and your family time. How do you balance, you know, you're a little more philosophical, like amidst all of this, how do you balance it out? How, how does, how does Steph balance out family time, personal time, you know, and, 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 being a parent and, and just disconnecting from cars for at least a moment. How do you do that, Steph? Yeah. Um, so we have our shop and everything stays there. I typically don't bring much. I don't bring any physical work home. Like mm-hmm. I'll have like my computer and, and do bookkeeping and, you know, just like work some work stuff on the computer at home, emails sure. and stuff. Sure. But um, uh, I think we're fortunate to have a good group of guys at the shop. Yes. And uh, we're able to plan each project and each event well to where we can work normal hours during the week, whether it's, you know, eight to five or eight to nine and and be able to go home and try not to work on weekends unless we're going to events. So it's taking on the amount of work that we can handle and then uh, trying to do a good job with planning and do our best to not make mistakes and, and, and uh, you know, finish cars and maintain them and stuff on, on, on time. Yes. And then we can have a normal work hour. You know, the days of, you know, working on the car until 2 in the morning yes. the night before the event <laughs> do still happen sometimes. Yes. Uh, but we try our best for that, that not to happen. Because um, you typically, we found that you typically don't have your best. If you're doing stuff last minute and you're finishing it up to the last minute, you can't have your best results. 
sure. people's heads are not on as straight. Yes. So it's part of a performance thing as well. If everybody's well rested and we feel like we had a plan and it, and it, and it came together well, uh, we found that to be a better route to success. See, I think that that's, that's a very important, you know, point to drive home. A lot of people sort of think that, you know, success has to come from just grinding yourself into the ground and finding a, a routine and a method that works and embracing it, finding balance, you know, with, between yourself as a person and uh, being, uh, you know, a family man. And so, you know, amidst all of that, all of these these projects that you have going on and, uh, you know, the family, I appreciate you, you know, locking in this time to to be on the Think Bigger podcast. And I know that, you know, whenever whenever we get past this interesting phase, you know, with uh, distancing and closures and just such a such a weird time, you know, um, I look forward to seeing you guys go out and have your continued success and follow. I would like to follow up. And I'm sure, you know, we've touched not with the surface, scratch the surface of so many things. Um, and so I really appreciate, you know, you, Steph, making time to be on the podcast. Yeah. Glad to be here. Thanks, Mike. Absolutely. Um, so, you, you know, I'm going to put all of your information out there and I always encourage the listeners to to interact. So you guys, you know, I mean, I'm sure he'll he'll make time at some point, uh, you know, follow the YouTube channel and uh, see what going, what's going on with Papadakis Racing. And I'll, uh, I'll tag him. And, and, you know, there's such a wide variety of people that listen that there's going to be some people that have absolutely no idea what FD is and what who a uh, guy named Frederick Asbo is and. And it's it's a really cool way to kind of bring you know worlds together, and then there are going to be the people who know everything that you said and we referenced, and are just you know going to be able to appreciate the history that led up to this. So as like I like I mentioned to you before, as a car enthusiast amongst anything else, this is you know is a really big deal for me, and I, I look forward to having a part two with you later. Sounds good. Let's do it. All right, Steph, thank you for your time. I appreciate you, everyone listening. Uh, thank you uh, for being here, and I'll see you guys on another episode of the Think Bigger podcast.